This is a Federal News Network podcast. Some members of Congress believe former President Donald Trump had a conflict of interest. As a private citizen, Trump, at least from the General Services Administration, the old post office pavilion, it became a Trump hotel. Now Nevada Democrat Dina Titus has introduced a bill that would require the GSA to terminate any lease with any elected federal official or head of an executive agency. Congresswoman Titus talked with Tom Temin. Tell us what your bill would require of the General Services Administration. Well, thank you for having me. Just a a little bit of background. The GSA owns and oversees about 377 million square feet of space within 9,600 public buildings. In addition to that, they do something they call outleasing. Now, usually that's a minor project like a Starbucks in a federal office building. But with the old post office, they outleased the entire building, did a big remake, and turned it into the Trump Hotel. Some of us felt like that was a violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution because that says you're not supposed to take things from foreign entities or other levels of government. Trump was both the tenant and the landlord, and so there was obviously a conflict of interest. But when we tried to get information about the books, who was staying there, how much they were paying, the GSA just shut us down. So that's not supposed to be a political partisan agency. It's supposed to just be a neutral regulatory oversight agency. So this bill will ensure that that's the case. And what about the future leases? In other words, it would terminate leases but also prevent this type of leasing in the future? No, not necessarily, but it will provide more congressional oversight and require the GSA to bring those leases to Congress. Also, what it will prohibit is any kind of foreign interest being engaged in those leases. Now, in the case of the Trump Hotel, I remember when that lease was signed, it was a 100-year lease with the Trump Organization. This was six, seven, or eight years before Donald Trump became President Trump, and so I think there's a provision then that upon becoming president, the lease would terminate. That's right. It will prohibit any kind of leases with the president, vice president, member of Congress, or head of an executive agency. Now, I believe that's already a fact in the Emoluments Clause, but that's something that the courts just wouldn't really interpret in several cases that were brought. So this states it explicitly. Right. Are you aware of any other instances of where this has come up at all? Not really. Nobody in government has kept a lease like this, and most things are put into blind trust, and this was just run or owned or operated by some of the family, and so it was obviously a conflict of interest. You had lobbyists staying there. You had foreign dignitaries staying there. You had the Republican Party doing events there. So obviously there was some attempt to curry favor with the president by putting money into his operation. Well, maybe it's because it had the best bacon you could get anywhere in Washington. I don't know. We're speaking with Democrat. (laughs) I don't know either. I never ate there. (laughs) We're speaking with Democrat Dina Titus, who represents Nevada's first district. And do you have any other support for this bill, even from any Republicans by any chance? Well, we'll see if any Republicans sign on to it. This was a topic that we discussed at length within the subcommittee that I chair, which is part of infrastructure and transportation. The chairman, Mr. DeFazio, signed on to this bill with me, and he was pursuing this issue long before I got here. And so we went through about 24,000 pages of records to come up with a report on it. So this is not some fly-by-night thing. This has been 
a long time in the making and based on a lot of facts and figures. Sure. Anything in the Senate at all at this point? No. The Oversight Committee, in addition to my committee, looked into the issue so I'm sure we'll get support from the members of that committee, at least on the Democratic side. All right. I wanted to switch gears, if I may, while we have you for just a moment. You have asked Interior Secretary Deb Holland to stop the Mustang roundups. And apparently there's been some serious issues with the boroughs and the Mustangs under the control of the Bureau of Land Management, including in Nevada. Oh, yes, especially in Nevada. Uh, We have the most wild horses of any state in the country, and they're such an iconic symbol of the Wild West. You don't have to be from the West to appreciate them. The folks who support my efforts come from all over the world, in fact, not just all over the country, because they're such majestic creatures. And the BLM has done a dismal job of trying to manage these herds, and they do need to be managed because... If they just keep reproducing, they'll starve to death or they'll die of thirst because there just aren't that many resources on public lands. Now, the cowboys hate them, uh, or the ranchers, because they want their cows to get the water and the grass out there on public lands and see the horses as a pest. But the public certainly is supportive. Now, there are a couple of areas that are problems. One is the roundups themselves. They use helicopters. There are about three companies that have had all the contracts for the helicopters, and they make a lot of money that comes right out of the taxpayer's pocket. Also, it's just a cruel process. They just run the horses down, scare them to death. There was a recent incident that was on national TV of a little colt that they ran down, crippled it, and they had to shoot it. So that's a problem. Now, the third problem that has arisen is they put all these horses in very close, small, contained spaces once they round them up, so they get diseases that are quickly passed from one to another. And we've seen just recently uh, about 150 horses die in several pens from respiratory ailments. So I want to look into this. I want the secretary to stop the roundups until they can figure how to do them better and how to better manage the horses. Oh, let me add a fourth problem. It shows you how bad this is. They had an adoption program at the BLM. They gave you $1,000 to take the horse, and then they didn't follow up, and a lot of people were getting the money and then selling the horse for consumption across the border. It is just a nightmare. And so we need better management, and I think we need to focus on birth control as opposed to just putting these horses in these pens. Yeah, the National Park Service manages some of the bison herds out west, and they do regular culling, as you say, to prevent the same problem of overpopulation and starvation and so forth, and they can become a pest if you let them. Maybe there's some National Park Service ought to collaborate with the Bureau of Land Management on how to manage herds. Well, that's a good idea. I'll reach out to them because the BLM certainly has done a terrible job, and they're in the pocket of the ranchers, it appears, because they don't seem to want to help in this case. You know, only a very small percentage of the money that we give to BLM for management has been used for birth control. And listen to this interesting story. They have used drones for roundups because a horse will follow a drone. Then you don't have to chase the horse. You don't have to scare it to death, but you can lead it to some place where you want it to go. Wouldn't that be more humane? Plus, I say hire some more cowboys. They know how to round up horses, so this is an employment bill. Put some of those cowboys to work and get out of the helicopter. Yeah, get some of those casino workers maybe and retrained as uh, as, uh, roundup folks. 
Well, everybody's talking about workforce development. This may be something to look into. Democrat Dina Titus represents Nevada's 1st District. She spoke there with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe to the Federal Drive on Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that 
and get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current, current times. I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people ask me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.